I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey folks, it's Luke. Stay where you are because coming up, author Kevin Barry reads from his book of short stories, including a passage about a misunderstood Irish ale club. There are those who would call us a bunch of drunks, but we don't see ourselves like that. We see ourselves as hobbyists. <laughs> ah, yeah, well, this is a show that feels a little better about its um, hobbies. This is... From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with authors Kevin Barry, A.M. Holmes, and music from Michael Hurst. All that plus comedy from our troupe, the Lakshmi Singers, and our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. All right, welcome to LiveWire, everybody. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. This is very exciting. This is the first of our annual Wordstock shows. You can feel the, the palpable sort of Motley Crue concert-type energy that you only get with a literary festival here in the Alberta Rose Theater. We have a lot of uh, amazing writers who are going to be uh, reading and talking about their work uh, throughout the show. Maybe the most amazing part of their writing is that it happened at all, right? Because I think most of us have a lot of interesting ideas in our brains and in our hearts and in our bellies maybe, but getting those ideas out, like sitting down and actually writing something, that is sometimes maybe the hardest part, which brings me to our first guest, uh, our favorite writer here on the show, and I have to say that because um, she's also the head writer of LiveWire and wrote that line that I just said. <laughs> Please welcome Courtney Hameister to the stage. Hey, everybody. All right, so Courtney, part of how I weaseled my way into this here chair right. was because you... Uh, have been working on a book for a while, and you wanted to be able to give a little bit more of your time to it. Now, how, how long have you been working on the book? I assume, like, six months, a year? Yeah, it's about uh, eight years. Sorry, your mic, they didn't have your mic up. Did you say eight years? I said around eight-ish years-ish. Yes. 
What has the process been like? Well, let me, let me explain. Because uh, what happened was I started writing all of these essays for this show and for other events, and so I suddenly had this sort of collection of essays. And so they exist, but what's happened is um, that... Uh, books of essays don't really sell that well and so what publishers tend to say to you is if you can turn this into a memoir then then we'd love to look at it and so what that means is taking your life and organizing it in some sort of theme or organizing principle and think about your own life and think about what would that be you know so that's what I'm struggling with I think some dramatic tension happened when someone stole your radio show Yes. I mean, that's that like got to be like be... chapter two. Yes. No, that's the opening chapter because, yeah, that's where all of the tension starts happening and uh, the well, murderous rage. I'm sorry. I understand that you actually have managed to write something about writing. <laughs> and you have oh. it. Can you, can you lay that on us? Sure, sure. Um, so I started writing essays about 10 years ago, and um, I didn't think about gathering them all together until a novelist friend mentioned that he thought that I might have a book on my hands. And there's something so romantic about books. There's so much promise in standing in a bookstore and leafing through their pages. I think our reading selves are our best selves. It's when we are most hopeful and curious and aspirational. I buy big brainy books for my ideal self all the time. She doesn't read them, but she'll have them to peruse when she finally arrives. And in the same way that books are romantic, so is the imagined life of a writer. Back when I was in advertising, I imagined my future life as a writer as the life of Dorothy Parker. Even though I had a plastic orange clamshell iBook and drank Malibu and Diet Cokes, I imagined myself hunched over a portable Underwood with a glass of bathtub gin and a cigarette because writing inexplicably turns you into a smoker. And I would be sent around the country by my publisher to sold-out readings where I would sign my shiny new hardbacks and people would ask me about my process. And I would throw my head back and say, process again. You people are unquenchable in the getting useful writing tips from me department. But things have changed since I started writing my little essays. The publishing world has pared down, and they no longer have the budget to send every writer on an expensive book tour to garner new audiences. In fact, in an attempt to guarantee that a publisher isn't going to be stuck with any unsold inventory, writers are now asked to come to them with a built-in audience. It's what they call a platform. Are you a blogger with hundreds of subscribers? Do you have tens of thousands of Twitter followers? Do you have a clout score above 70? Do you even know what a clout score is? <laughs> this is what they would have asked Dorothy Parker. And Dorothy would have been amazing on Twitter. 70 years before Twitter existed, she spouted 140 characters or less jewels like, it serves me right for putting all my eggs in one bastard. And... <laughs> I know. And when she was asked to use the word horticulture in a sentence, she said, you can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think. <laughs> Best tweet ever. Can you imagine reading Jack Kerouac's drunken Facebook posts from the road? Or Jane Austen's blog, Ostentatious. <laughs> With all the latest landed gentry dating gossip and personal hygiene tips for those with no indoor plumbing. 
Sure, it would have been interesting, but none of these people would have wanted to have a platform because what they wanted to do was write, and not write tweets or Tumblr posts with blurry Instagrams of their mutton and mead, but books and poems. Not to write about their writing, but just to write. Author Karen Carbo once said that when it came to writing, she had about 1,500 words in her a day. And those words could be spread out in whatever way she chose. 1,200 on her book, 300 on various social media sites. So once she's spent, she's spent. So that makes her very judicious with her online socializing. And it pains me to think that writers are pulling from their creative wells to fill their Twitter streams instead of pages. If you think about it that way, these platforms are robbing us all of words that would otherwise be in great works of art. But then I suppose it all depends on whether or not you think a well-constructed tweet is a great work of art. On the plus side, the amount of time today's novelists spend tweeting and Instagramming will never equal how long it took to handwrite a manuscript or retype a draft on an old portable typewriter with a missing R and no delete key in sight. So maybe it's a wash. So the specifics of the fantasy have changed. I'm no longer reading to a sold-out crowd at a New York Barnes & Noble. I'm in a Google Hangout. I'm digitally signing Kindles instead of books. And I'm still hunched over an old Underwood, but that's because I'm Instagramming a picture of it to my followers with the hashtag, hard at work. But the important parts of the dream remain the same. People standing in bookstores or clicking look inside and pouring hopefully over your words and then finding themselves in libraries, on beaches, or lying awake at 4 a.m. with an itty-bitty book light devouring every page because the scene with the fight about the sandwich was exactly like their life. Or they have to know if he kills her or if they finally, for the love of God, fall in love or if he saves Indonesia from an inevitable financial decline. And maybe, if you're incredibly lucky, you're part of them becoming their best selves because you helped them imagine it. Nothing will ever change that part of the dream. That was Courtney Hameister. Michael Hurst has always looked in interesting places for his musical inspiration. He's teamed with writers like Dave Eggers and Margaret Atwood. In 2011, he did something called the Recipe Project, in which he set recipes from top chefs like Mario Batali to music, word for word. <laughs> and now he's released the album called Songs for Unusual Creatures, with musical odes to the blue-footed booby, the blobfish, and, of course, the Jesus Christ lizard. Please welcome Michael Hurst to LiveWire.
Michael Hurst, ladies and gentlemen. I think this is the part of the Tim Burton movie where I'm a real boy. <laughs> what the hell were you just playing? Uh, so I have two instruments here, and, and this is a song called The Chinese Giant Salamander. It was inspired by this creature, this real creature, the Chinese Giant Salamander. It's about a six-foot-long animal. And I was thinking, what sounds would sort of represent that animal? And one is the theremin, which was invented in the 1920s by Leon Theremin perhaps the only instrument you do not touch to play. You've probably heard it in some sci-fi movies. And then this guy, which is the stylophone. It comes equipped with a stylus. I, I watched a video of you playing that instrument and, uh, on your website, and I really thought that you had modified an answering machine <laughs> from the late 70s. I, that was really... Was what, that your message you left? Yes. <laughs> I, now I understand why you didn't call me back. I was leaving it on a stylescope. <laughs> Style of phone. Um, I, I mean, was that ever played anywhere other than on the stage or by you, that instrument? No, this is it. This is the only time it's ever been used. No, it was, uh, it was invented in the 70s, and uh, it kind of disappeared for a while, and then it just reappeared at places like Urban Outfitters in the past uh, year or so. And, uh, yeah, I decided I had to incorporate it into some of my music. How long does it take you to learn an instrument like that stylus thing or the theremin? Because, I mean, guitar... Violin, these are instruments we have a sense for what it takes to master them. Do you learn those in an afternoon? Well, mastering is a very general <laughs> term. I'm not, I'm not sure I have mastered any of these. Um, I play a lot of instruments mediocre. Uh, <laughs> the stylophone really just requires good eyesight. It's, a, it's a, and some piano skills. <laughs> it's basically just got very small piano keys that you can see. Um, strangely, it has a tuner on the back in case you want to change the tuning. I don't know. And then the theremin... Uh, is, in fact, very difficult. It's easy to make noise. It's very hard to make a melody. Basically, the difference between a pitch, a note, is like a micrometer. So if you breathe too much while you're playing, it goes... The trick is to add a lot of vibrato. And then you're always in tune. You live in a uh, smallish apartment in New York City. How do your neighbors feel about this situation? Uh, they've, they've been, you know, I've prepared them on the noise. They, they know. They're very familiar with it. Um, yeah, it's a one-and-a-half-bedroom apartment, which I think you mentioned is, like, something you only hear in New York, the, the term half-bedroom. It's like a real estate yeah. term. But, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of fun sounds come from my apartment. I collect every strange toy I can think of and find ways to apply it to my music. This is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Michael Hurst. Um, his latest project is called Unusual Creatures, Songs for Unusual Creatures. How do you decide that, um, you know, you're going to try to describe musically the blobfish or the uh, blue-footed booby? Like, I mean, where does your process start in terms of trying to turn those animals into sounds? Well, it starts by looking at the pictures. <laughs> and some of these animals are just so amazing, the images of them and... Uh, the, the blobfish, um, you know, it's become a big thing in the last month or two. I like to think I had something to do with that. Yeah, we should explain to people the blobfish was recently declared by the Internet to be the homeliest animal in the world, right? It looks like an elderly person who's been skinned. Yeah, it's... And it's, then it's I mean, that's it's, one way of putting it. Um, it's pretty ridiculous looking. I kind of find it to be adorable. But you have to realize this picture that is all over the Internet is a blobfish that has been removed from the deep sea where it doesn't have the pressures 
of the ocean. Um, but uh, yeah, it's still blobular and has very few muscles, and um, it, I consider it to be the jello of the sea. <laughs> but yeah, so musically, though, I just imagined this low sounding two very deep instruments. So for that particular song, I have a tubax, which is a combination of a, a saxophone and a tuba playing the melody. And it sounds like a blobfish to me. Which of these unusual creatures do you think you feel the most sort of emotional closeness with? <laughs> well, they're all my kids. You know, that's how do you... How do you, um, what do you which one do you identify with? Wow. Uh, well, I do like the I.I. I visited the I.I., which is a nocturnal lemur from Madagascar. And it has this one really long finger, which... Uh, <laughs> which it uses to tap on trees. And uh, this is how I do my kid's presentation. I describe the eye-eye with its long finger tapping on trees to find grub. It, it's the only animal that uses uh, echolocation, a, a primate to use echolocation to find food. Um, you're, when you come back out here, you're going to play some, um, a song that's from another project you did, Songs for Ice Cream Trucks. Right. Can you tell us? <laughs> tell us I mean, that seems like it's kind of in the title. Um, is the, I mean, yeah, so I don't know if I have a chance to talk then, but, uh, you know, I, again, working out of my one-and-a-half-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, at some point I was just getting so fed up with hearing the same song go by every day in the same truck and was thinking, man, somebody has got to come up with some new songs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're going to hear that coming up in just a little bit when we have more of Michael Hurst. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. That was Michael Hurst. His latest record and book is Songs for Unusual Creatures. You are listening to Livewire Radio, where we didn't start the fire. That was Billy Joel who did that, and frankly, we're really ticked about it. All right, stay tuned. We'll be back with authors Kevin Barry and A.M. Holmes and more from Michael Hurst. This is Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire. Women compose 11% of Nobel Prize for Literature winners. In 2012, the Man Booker Prize shortlist was an all-male review. And the Penn Faulkner has gone to mostly men, too. But ladies, your day has come. Introducing the Penn Faulkner Award for Ladies. A literary award? For me? You bet. The Penn Faulkner Award for Ladies has been specifically designed with the needs of women writers in mind. Categories include best book placed in the women's studies section just because it has a female protagonist, 
Best book with shoes, a martini glass, or shopping bags on the cover for no reason. And best allegorical satire about monetary reform in 18th century Britain with a pink cover. You know, they did turn my cover pink. Why did they do that? Because vaginas. Uh, what? That's the award what? itself is perfect for the woman writer on the go. It's got a zippered pocket for all your important lady stuff, like lipstick, tampons, a special pen that approximates a man's handwriting for cover letters, and a pair of pink boxing gloves so you can punch Jonathan Franzen in his stupid smug face. Look, um, can I just have one of the regular awards? Sure, some women have won the National Book Award. Great, that comes with $10,000. I will take that one. Ooh, sorry. When a woman wins it, she gets a spa day. Seriously? The Penn Faulkner Award for Women. It's the Virginia Slims of Literary Awards. That's Laura Faye Smith and Courtney Hameister. You are listening to Livewire Radio, where schadenfreude isn't just a funny German word to us, guys. It's how we do business. <laughs> Kevin Barry has described himself as a combination of a monstrous creature composed 99% of ego and alternately hugely insecure and desperate to be loved by the readers to a disturbing stalkerish degree. In other words, he's a writer. He's written a novel called The City of Bohane and two award-winning short story collections, the most recent of which, Dark Lies the Island. He'll be reading from that tonight. Please welcome Kevin Barry and his wonderful Irish lilt to Livewire. Thank you very, very much. I'm going to read just a page or two from a story about two apparently blameless little old ladies as they drive around County Sligo in Ireland on a beautiful summer's day. I say apparently blameless. Our ladies are called Ernestine and Kit. Two ladies in their 60s made ground through North County Sligo in a neat Japanese car. The sky above Loch Gill was deep blue, and the world was fat on the blood of summer. The speed limit was carefully abided, and all the turns were slowed for. There was the carnival air of a fine Saturday in June. A vintage car show had drawn a great crowd to Kilmore. The old Fords and Triumphs honked cheerfully in the sun, and the ladies, as they passed by, smiled and waved. There was a lengthy queue for the ferry ride to the Lake Isle of Inishfree. There were castles to be visited and waymarked walks to be hotly trailed. All the shaded tables outside the village pubs were full and tinkled with glasses and laughter, and children played unguarded in the cool of the woods. When it gets a good old lick of weather at all, Ernestine said, this is one powerful country. There's no place to compare, Kit said, and summer growth swished against the Toyota's side windows on a tight bend after Tully Town. Ernestine was big, with the high colour of a carnivore. 
and her haunches strained a little against the capacity of her cream linen trousers in the confined space of the driver's seat. Her mottled, fleshy arms were held tensely erect as she steered. She had learned to drive later in life. (laughs) Kit, slightly the younger, was long-necked, tightly permed, and thin as a cable. She had a darting glance that scanned the country they passed through, and by habit she drew her companion's attention to places and people of interest. Would they be, would they be hair extensions, she asked, (laughs) as they passed a young blonde pushing a pram along the roadside verge. You can bet on it, Ernestine said. (laughs) The way they're streaked with that silvery-looking kind of cheap-looking, Kit said. Yes, Ernestine said. Gaudy, Kit said. A young mother, Ernestine said, and she got up like a tuppenny whore. The skirt, Ernestine said. The skirt is barely down past her modesty. Are you watching? <laughs> I am watching. And that horrible, horrible stonewashed denim. <laughs> where, said Ernestine, where would the whore be headed for Kit? <laughs> Kit consulted the road map. Lacan Town is the next place along, she said. It's only a stretch up the road from here. Her ladyship is headed into a pub, no doubt. Drinking cider, Ernestine said, with fellas with earrings and tattoos. In by a pool table, in a dank old back room, dank. You can only imagine, said Kit, and she made the sign of the cross. A jukebox, beer barrels, cocaine in the toilets, the misfortunate infant left to its own devices. Would we nearly stall for a little while in Lacan Town, Kit? Kit pondered this for a moment. No, she said. We'll hit on for the castle. There'll be a nice crowd there for sure. Onwards through the county, the Toyota mildly sped. And the ladies had the windows buzzed for breeze. It brought the medieval scent of old-growth woods. They had been on the road since early morning, but no tiredness yet. The excitement of the outing countered that. A cornetto would go down at three, Ernestine said. It's ice cream weather most certainly, Kit said. And they smiled at each other. They hoped to have the need to buy ice creams soon enough. And more than two. Thank you very much. Kevin Berry. Reading from Dark Lies the Island. There seems to be a, a theme woven through this book of people's hopes and dreams going slightly awry, whether it's a first kiss that doesn't quite work out or a guy who doesn't like his daughter's boyfriend because the boyfriend could probably take him in a fight. But what's interesting is that the characters seem to kind of make a certain peace with that. Yeah. I mean, I don't generally, I guess, write about happy people, you know? Um, Who wants to hear about happy people? Happy people are very uninteresting, I think. Um, Yeah, all the characters are troubled and and vicious often and malevolent and drunken and crazy. I love them all, you know? I love them so dearly. They seem Um, to all live by their own codes. Yeah. So, so that even though what they're doing, if they're taking a letter off of a hardware store and smashing it into the sidewalk, or okay. it makes sense in their own minds somehow. Yeah. I think a lot of the stories, what they have in common is we're coming towards a moment where things that have just about been tamped down 
are about to come unloose and about to break apart, you know. There are all these kind of very dark, very troubling moments in the book, and it's how people respond to that and how they deal with that and what happens next. You've said that you want to write about a part of Ireland that hasn't been written about extensively. Uh, why hasn't it been written about, and, and how are you trying to change that? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a weird thing. I mean, when you're coming through as an Irish writer, when you start in your 20s, you look around, and it's a small, wet, tormented rock on the edge of the Atlantic. And you throw a stick and you hit a writer or a poet over the head, you know? And you get to sense, God, the whole place has been done, you know? It's all been covered. But actually, as, as I started to write, I discovered that there are whole realms of Irish life that have never been covered. Working-class life in the Irish cities has almost never appeared in our, our literature because those communities simply weren't in the way of producing books. And their take on the English language is a mad, wonderful, beautiful, weird take on English. And it's a great thing to work with. So, so even as an Irishman, you're saying that language is weird to you because I had, could not make sense of half of it. Okay. Well, it's not just it's, me. It's got kind of, there's a, there are lots of different undertoes on the language as it's spoken in, in Ireland, the, primarily the Irish language that, that, that does replace it. And the way we formulate our sentences is very different. And it's, um, it's good, you know, it's kind of cool. And, but I think, I think most readers anywhere can, will, will get with the flow of it. But I always think, you know, if, if I can get Portland, Portland can get me kind of a thing. So it's... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think congratulations are in order for you because um, last summer you won something called the Impact Dublin Prize, which comes with a cash award of 100,000 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Do I owe anybody money? Um, (laughs) Now now is the time to hit me up because it won't last. I'll blow it. I have to pay off gambling debts and, you know, lots of things. You're getting every round at the bar after the show tonight. How does that affect, for better or for worse, your, your writing process? It, it increases your profile and it gives me readers, and I want readers, you know? Um, you know, some writers will say they never think about the reader while they're writing. I, I think about the reader all the time. I'm a complete whore for the reader. <laughs> I, people could be doing lots of other things. They could be watching amazing TV. They could be doing stuff online. You know, they could be out walking the dog. If they're going to read my book, I want it to be an entertaining house that they're in. And I want to give them a good time. So, so I'm always thinking about the reader, and that's very important to me as I write. Um, I hope it's okay if I read this, because okay. this was actually a private correspondence you had with our executive producer, Robin Tenenbaum. But this was about a banal thing, which was picking you up for the show. This was the email you wrote. I'll be waiting and red-faced eager at 6.45 p.m. Just in case of kidnap, hostage, slash arrest jail situation, my Irish mobile will be on. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm really happy to announce that the collected emails will be available yeah. um, for the Christmas period. Yeah. Do you feel like, as an Irish writer, literally everything you write has to be fascinating? Do you have epic grocery lists that just read and read? Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, it's an amazing thing. We, we, we got it like a tap. You just turn it on and out it comes, you know? So you Would that it were that easy. Kevin Barry, thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Kevin Barry's new book is Dark Lies the Island. You are listening to Livewire. Hello, 
this is Bahir. May I have your account number, please? Damn it, Bahir, it's me. Ah, Mr. Trenton, how can I help you? We got a big problem here, Bahir. My publisher wants me to fly to New York to discuss my new book. Well, congratulations, Mr. Trenton. Hopefully another bestseller is on the way. No, 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 that's not it. I think she's on to me. What do you mean she's on to you? Well, she was being very vague on the phone. Said she liked what she read, but there were some inconsistencies. Said the tone shifted too much. Uh, that is not very specific. I know, but look, if they find out that I've been outsourcing my work to you, <laughs> I'm finished. But Mr. Trenton, you are a New York Times best-selling author. I know, I know, but, you know, you did all the work. No, 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 that is not true. You had to copy and paste it into your Word program. Oh, yeah. And then you had to attach that to an email, and uh -huh. then you had to send that email. Eh? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess that's true. That's right. Plus, you gave me great ideas to start with. That's right, like the robot who could paint, yeah. And, and, and the lady who could control dogs just by clapping. Right, right. I, yes, I started with that. Uh, and then I wrote that novel about the repression of lust in 1920s high society Japan. That book sold really well. But now what am I going to do, Bahir? I, I didn't even read what you wrote before I turned it in. And I'm sure you will do fine. They probably just want to talk about a new book deal. Maybe, but just in case, just tell me what this new one is about. It's about this elderly French couple, religious dies, and the fear of abandonment. Okay, that sounds good, but I have a bunch of notes here from my publisher. She says, okay, the, the characterization of the papacy is muddled. There seems to be a pervasive issue of defamiliarization de with the antagonist, and there needs to be a starker acceptance of guilt in the de, de, deni, deni, de, de, de uh, Yeah, sure, ah. that's it. She's not making any sense, Bahir. No, 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 Mr. Trenton, these are good notes. Uh, okay, uh, I think we need to reestablish that the papacy references are hyperbole, uh, clean up the falling action, and soften the tendentiousness. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, you know, I should really probably call her up. No, 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 okay, that's okay. I'll, you don't need to do that. Don't right, call all right, her. Okay, look, I, I'll work on these edits and then send you a new version. How's that? Okay, good. Fine, but just, just hurry up, okay? I gotta meet my friend Anders for handball in like an hour. Of course, of course, Mr. Darko, as fast as I can. Oh, and uh, you were thinking about whether or not you would include my name in the special thanks section of this one? Uh, what? But here? Mr. <laughs> So, sorry, Mr. Bahir, you're breaking up. I can Mr. barely Trent hear you. Mr. Trenton, you are on a digital mobile phone. There would not be any static. Listen, just put my name in the special thanks, and the New York Times book review won't be getting an anonymous letter, all right? Okay, you got it. Sorry. All right, I've got another call coming in. You have to let you go, Mr. Trenton. Hello, this is Bahir. Can I have your account number, please? Bahir, it's Jonathan Latham. Look... <laughs> I'm supposed to go on Charlie Rose tonight and talk about my new book, but I don't understand what it's about. Oh, Mr. Latham, just calm down. Just, just, just breathe, breathe, and, and I'll talk you through it. Uh, Sanji, I've got Latham on line two. Looks like it's going to be another all-nighter. That was Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris from the Lakshmi Singers. 
If it can be written, our next guest, A.M. Holmes, has probably done it. Novels, short story collection, memoirs, TV episodes for HBO, FX, and Showtime. Articles in Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and The New York Times. Her most recent novel, May We Be Forgiven, just won the Britain Woman's Prize for Fiction. Please welcome A.M. Holmes to Livewire. All right, let's just start off with this uh, prize. The Guardian newspaper, when you won this prize, said that you upset the bookmaker's favorite. I beat Hilary Mantel. So bookies in Britain are taking bets on who wins a woman's yes. prize for fiction? It's just shocking, though it is. Yes, exactly. Were you surprised by that, that victory? Terrified. Actually, I thought Hilary Mantel was going to come after me. <laughs> is there a lot of, you know, sort of internecine fighting between well-respected female authors? Well, there's actually, there was competitive uh, sound-checking. Um, very difficult. Uh, Hilary Mantel recited, I think, a historical document from memory. And then Barbara Kingsolver did the Jabberwocky. Um, and I um, told them what I had for breakfast. <laughs> it was difficult. Um, let's, uh, let's talk a little about Harry Silver, who is the protagonist in your new book. What What's happening for him in, in this book? Harry Silver is a Nixon scholar who actually loses his academic position because, as some of you may know, history is more future-forward these days and not so interested in the past. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Nixon history in this book. Did you have an interest in that going in? Did you just yeah. have to immerse yourself in the Nixon library? Uh, I, I went to the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, and I bought actually the Nixon Library, the snow globe of Nixon's birthplace, and then I realized later it doesn't actually snow in Yorba Linda, but in my snow globe it does. Do you think he's uh, still a little misunderstood by, by folks? I think Nixon's actually fascinating. Number one, he inspired an entire sort of multiple generations of presidents with his line that if the president does it, it's not illegal. That was just sort of like a call to action, really, for, for people after that. You're writing from the perspective of a, of a man in this book. How do you prepare to do that? <laughs> I don't think I can discuss that on the radio, actually. <laughs> you know what? I would say go for it, and we'll bleep out anything that goes over the line. It's that kind of word stock show. What? I promise to never do that again. I'm sorry. I apologize. I mean, how do you... How do you approach writing from the perspective of a, of a guy? Um, I'm trying to think of what's really the best answer for that is. I, I, I can't say it on, t on TV. Um, you don't even I know what kind of show really, you're on. Just real, let it go. Know, exactly. real, I, I'm dying to hear. I know. Is, I know. It, is it something that men might have their manly feelings hurt by? Is that oh, what you Oh, not at say? all. No. I mean, I can tell you that in fourth grade, I went trick-or-treating as Willie Loman. Um, <laughs> I had a... I, that this, should have been your sound check conversation. <laughs> I had the skinhead, the skinhead wig, my father's suit, and weirdly, I collected candy in a briefcase. I don't know. You know, it okay, comes naturally. So that prepared you. That started it, and then I think you know. I, the truth is, I really write from the imagination, and and I, I can't think of anything less interesting to me than to write as myself, as a middle-aged woman who is a Girl Scout leader. You know, I just I don't know. It doesn't work for me. Now. 
I don't want to give away too much from the book, but um, Harry has always lived in the shadow of his younger brother, and through a variety of uh, circumstances, he ends up kind of inhabiting that guy's life to a degree. And, and his wife and his clothing, and yes, exactly. Yeah, yes. he inhabits a lot of things right. that he shouldn't be inhabiting, right, it turns exactly. out, which is where the problems really start. Yeah. And he's out in the suburbs, and he's running into a lot of really sexually forward women. Do you think that we've, as a society, we've got it wrong when we, we sort of think that the suburbs aren't... I guess I didn't know until I read this book the suburbs were crawling with sexually forward women. And I've been living in the city the whole time like an idiot. Um, I mean, were you trying to make a statement uh, a little bit about how you think this, the sexes really do interact with each other? Well, I think it's interesting. In one way, I was actually looking at the impact of technology on how we live and how we interact. And there's, so there's a, a big section of internet dating, which I, I did do a lot of research for. And what I will tell you is that there are regional favorites, and it's shocking. If you go on sort of the... Um, so I said, the help wanted. I don't know if you call it that exactly, but on the on internet dating well, sites, I mean, and it you is look, very helpful. And you look in different parts of the country, what people are looking for. It's like regional cuisine. It will shock you. How how much research about online casual sex encounters was for the book, and how much was just because it piqued your interest? I, I don't even know where to draw the line. I, I honestly, I found it mesmerizing. Um, at one point, I did, I will just admit only, only to the few of you that are here, that I did exchange ma- uh, emails with um, two, two people. One was a Hasidic woman looking for lesbian sex, um, and I suggested she actually talk to her rabbi, and she basically hung up on me online. Um, and then there was a woman who had lost both of her arms in a drunken farming accident, and under things she liked to do was shots. And I thought, number one, how do you do that now? And when will you learn? <laughs> and and she, had, she had posted herself as Venus de Milo. Wow. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. That is... I'm not saying that makes her accident <laughs> worth it, but that's the most amazing online handle I've ever heard for somebody with that yeah. situation. That seems as good a point as any to have you read a little bit from May We Be Forgiven. This is A.M. Holmes on Livewire. May we be forgiven, an incantation, a prayer, the hope that somehow I come out of this alive. Was there ever a time you thought, I'm doing this on purpose, I'm screwing up and I don't know why? Do you want my recipe for disaster? The warning sign, last year, Thanksgiving at their house, 20 or 30 people at tables spreading from the dining room into the living room, stopping abruptly at the piano bench. He was at the head, picking turkey out of his teeth, talking about himself. I kept watching him as I went back and forth, carrying plates into the kitchen, the edges of my fingers dipping into unnameable goo, cranberry sauce, sweet potato, cold pearl onion, gristle. With every trip from the dining room to the kitchen, I hated him more. Every sin of our childhood, beginning with his birth, came back. They named him George. Geo, he liked to be called like it was something cool, scientific, mathematical. Geode, I called him, like a sedimentary rock. (laughs) I stood in their kitchen picking at the carcass while George's wife Jane did the dishes, bright blue gloves on up to her elbows and suds. 
My fingers were deep in the bird, the hollow body still warm, the best bits of stuffing packed in. I dug with my fingers and brought stuffing to my lips. Jane looked at me, my mouth moist, my fingers curled into what would have been the turkey's G-spot if they had such things. (laughs) She lifted her hands out of the water and came towards me to plant one on me. Not friendly. The kiss was serious, full of desire. She did it, then snapped off her gloves and walked out of the room. I was holding the counter, gripping it with greasy fingers. Dessert was served. Jane asked if anyone wanted coffee and went back into the kitchen. I followed her like a dog wanting more. She ignored me. Are you ignoring me? I asked. She said nothing and then handed me the coffee. Could you let me have a little pleasure, a little something that's just for myself? She paused. Cream and sugar? It's A.M. Holmes. Reading from her new book, May We Be Forgiven, there is a a point in the book where uh, one of the characters is subjected to the most unusual kind of outward bound meets jail meets a most dangerous game. The woodsman. Yes. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Is that a... Is there some version of that? Basically, a person is, instead of being incarcerated, they're sort of let out into the woods with a bunch of other bad people. Yeah, and, and a government cheese locker. They're allowed to get cheese. I am hoping you invented that out of whole cloth. I did, but, you know, I, I often, I, I write what I call anticipatory fiction. I see what's coming next, and I, I plan for it. All right, well, if that happens, uh, you'll have heard about it first here on Livewire from AM Holmes. Thank you, AM. Thank you so much. You are listening to Livewire Radio, brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, featuring 25 different varieties of apples this month. Here's the thing. Apples are rich in antioxidants, but they are normally high up in trees, and you can't get to them without a ladder or a really long stick. But Whole Foods have solved that problem by working with regional harvesters to provide you with fresh local produce all at a reasonable distance from the ground. More information available at eataspromised.com. All right, stay tuned. We'll be back with more from Michael Hurst. This is Livewire.
And now a little segment where we answer your pressing questions with answers we pulled out of our keisters backstage about 11 minutes ago. We call it Dear Livewire. You've got questions. We've got answers. We should totally hook up Dear Livewire. All right. We paid $200,000 for that theme song. That's your donations at work, and I think it was worth every single penny. Uh, here at LiveWire, we get questions from our live audience. We also get some from Twitter and even from friends at the grocery store. And this is the part of the show where we try to answer them. But sometimes we have questions that we just don't feel we are qualified to answer. So we try to get someone who's an expert. This was one such question from listener Tim. Due to common usage, the definition of literally has been updated to mean both literally and figuratively. Are we literally going to hell in a handbasket? <laughs> it's a fair question. So to uh, answer this one, we, we thought we would turn to NPR National Desk correspondent and a grammar nerd. He's my buddy. His name is Mike Pesca. He's won the Edward R. Murrow Award twice, so we think he knows a little something about putting words together. Mike, welcome to LiveWire. Oh, thanks for having me. Was that a dark, dark day for this nation when literally was changed to mean essentially figuratively? It was literally the worst thing ever to happen. <laughs> you know, this is what I think. You know, in, in the world of words, what we're supposed to do is look at the dictionary like an anthropologist. And it's not supposed to say you're wrong and you're right. It's just supposed to describe how people use words. So if people use literally, literally, stupidly, we got to say, all right, then it becomes figuratively a little bit. I do have to say, it drives me freaking crazy. <laughs> I mean, don't we have to draw a line somewhere? I understand that the argument can be made that the idea of language is to transmit ideas, and as long as people know that when you say, I could care less... You mean I couldn't care less. I mean, I guess it's fine, right? But I feel like if we don't at some point draw a line, it's going to turn into Planet of the Apes, right? Yeah. You blew it up. Damn you to hell. And if I know anything of Planet of the Apes, it's that Cornelius misused adverbs left and right. <laughs> um, so I, I excuse the literally people. I really don't think, I think if you surveyed most of them, they wouldn't say, oh, is that what literally means? They kind of would know it. They just want to amplify. They want to indig in their statements. I get that. But the one that really drives me up the wall is the misuse of nonplus. Right? People will say, so when, when told of the plague of locusts, Steve was nonplus, he ordered a second daiquiri and went back to his Sudoku puzzle. But no, nonplus doesn't mean unfazed. Nonplus means bewildered, confused, or taken aback. And yet in the dictionary, it will say the last and latest definition, unfazed. You sound anything but nonplussed about that. You seem to be I arguing do. against your opening statement, Pesca. You are literally correct. You know, no, what it is is, you know, if I kept saying, if I kept saying three plus three is seven, three plus three is seven, would there be some math manual that says, you know, a lot of people are saying three plus three is seven. Maybe we got to give it to them. 
right? I kept insisting that the capital of Greece was London. It would never become London. But with words, if actually you get it wrong long enough, I'll give it to you. All right, Mike. Well, I think it's going to be you and me and these beautiful people at the Alberta Rose Theater standing against the tide of people who just don't take this language seriously enough. We appreciate your help. Thank you, sir. Do not go gentle. Goodbye. That's Mike Pesca from NPR. Dear Livewire was, as always, brought to you by New Belgium Brewing. Soon, somewhere, maybe not here, but somewhere, water is going to get all crystally in the sky and fall onto cars. It's called snow, and it's crazy, people. Livewire is sponsored by New Belgium Brewing, whose new Accumulation White IPA features a snowy white head and notes of peach, and it was inspired by long winter nights watching the snow pile up on stuff. More information can be found at newbelgium.com. All right, folks, he's back with a song for ice cream trucks. Please welcome back to the stage Michael Hurst. Michael Hurst, ladies and gentlemen, right here on Livewire. And that is our show. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests, Kevin Berry, A.M. Holmes, Mike Pesca, and Michael Hurst. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Laughing Planet Cafe, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Arts Commission, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Plus, listeners like you find people. 
hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. Our sketch comedy troupe is Sean McGrath, Laura Faye Smith, Courtney Hommeister, and Andrew Harris. Our head writer is Courtney Hommeister with show writers Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and a little bit from me. Guest writers of this show are Alex Falcone and Caitlin Kunkel. Sound effects by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our house engineer is Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Will Fernandez. Special thanks to Revival Drum Shop and Showcase Music. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. Thank you to Katie Merritt, Kathleen Lane, Sarah Guest, and all of the wonderful people from Wordstock. For more information about our show or how to become a member of Livewire, visit livewireradio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. This is Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Our reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.